0: The following is an audio recording of Mara Reimagined, Stories of the Evil One in Changing Contexts by Dr. Michael Nichols of St. Joseph's College, Indiana. Recorded on April 18, 2014 at the Institute of Buddhist Studies Pneumata Symposium, Narrative in Buddhist Texts, Practice, and Transmission. A response by Scott Mitchell of the Institute of Buddhist Studies follows.
1: It's a real thrill uh, to be here. So I want to thank Dr. Matsumoto and Dr. Mitchell for the invitation. I really appreciate the opportunity. So what I'm going to talk about is uh, deals with Mara. And so any scholar of Buddhism who studied the various narratives, or anyone who's familiar with the narratives of the story of the awakening of Siddhartha Gautama, will also have encountered the figure of Mara, the deity and demon who represents desire and death and attempts to prevent Gautama's realization. This is found in numerous textual permutations, the Buddha Charita, Nidana Katha, Alita Vistra, to name some of the primary counts. And the story of the confrontation has been a subject for adaptation and reinvention in Buddhist traditions for, for a long while. While previous work on Mara has been done regarding the figures symbolism in these Indian traditions and even some contemporary festivals in Southeast Asia, little attention has been focused on the appearances of Mara in Western forms especially popular culture. To do so has a number of immediate discernible benefits. First, it's instructive to at least some of the ways an ancient figure such as Mara is perceived or adapted to a mass media world. And second, it might provide evidence for the broader reception or even consumption of Buddhism in the Western world. In their treatment of religious themes in popular culture in America, Bruce David Forbes and Jeffrey Mahon acknowledged the reflective properties of mass media but emphasize that it, quote, both reflects and shapes us. The two dynamics are, of course, not mutually exclusive, and together it provides an explanation for how religious concepts and ideas take on stereotypical guises in popular culture and mass media, yet proceed to engender new forms. Myths may be made, but we would be wrong to think they ever stop being made. In defining the term transvaluation, James Liska, who's written on the semiotics of myth, has argued along these lines also, writing that myth, quote, is a shape, or better, a value shifter, rather than a value producer. So when I talk about the term myth, it's always coextensive with myth-making, and furthermore, the act of myth-making is inextricable from social and political debate and imagination. So in this presentation, I'll analyze and compare two instances of the reinterpretation of the Mara figure reflecting Western popular culture context. The first is Canadian convert Buddhist Ajahn Punadamo's work, Letter from Mara, which is an explicit Buddhist reworking of the literary classic, The Screwtape Letters, by C.S. Lewis. The second is the appearance of Mara in two series, eight total episodes of the British science fiction television series, Doctor Who, in the early 1980s. All these manifestations of Mara have different contexts and motivations. The overlaps in their symbolism are telling for the deployment of Mara in Western Buddhism. And the following, I'll attempt to bring out those differences and similarities, along with their potential significance for evolving notions of Buddhist narrative. So I had some images to go along with this, and so the, the projector is not talking to the, the computer. So when, when it's appropriate, I'll describe the things you would have seen uh, if otherwise uh, you know, th- things had cooperated. So let's start first with letter from Mara. Uh, Born in Toronto as Michael Dominski, John Punadamo became interested in Buddhism as a young man. He traveled to Thailand and was eventually ordained a Theravadan monk there in 1992. Returning to Canada, Punadamo founded a Theravadan meditation retreat center in northern Ontario near Thunder Bay that he called Arrow River Forest Hermitage. This center in both its physical and digital form on the web is dedicated to educating the unfamiliar about Buddhist teaching. According to advertisements, visitors to the center receive access to its library of Buddhist texts and tailored meditation instruction. Visitors to the website can also download free Pali language tutorials, as well as lessons detailing such fundamental Buddhist teachings as the doctrines of karma and rebirth, dependent origination, and narratives of the life story of the Buddha. Other links take one to archives of Punadamo's writings, which include blogs detailing his from a Buddhist perspective, ruminations on contemporary ethical issues such as abortion or the 2003 Iraq War, and a column on similar topics that he published for a time in the Toronto Star from 1999 to 2006. So Punadamo's retreat center and writings as a whole are geared toward communicating basic concepts and principles of the Buddhist path to a largely unfamiliar Western audience and I believe we can justifiably understand his work letter from Mara as stemming from the same motive, as most of his work and most of his program seems to to have that motivation. So the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, which Punadamo cites explicitly as the inspiration for his book in his acknowledgments, was originally published in 1942, and it's shaped as a series of correspondences from a senior devil named Screwtape to his nephew, a more subordinate demon called Wormwood. He was engaged in trying to tempt and corrupt one particular unnamed Englishman. Lewis's aim in the book was to demonstrate in his imagination of a Christian perspective the character and intent of malign forces in the world. As the very name Screwtape suggests, Lewis puts forth a scenario in which the activity of these demonic beings is the inversion and perversion of the nature of God's creation. Punadamu borrows Lewis's motif to convey his understanding of the role of the figure of Mara in the world. And along the way, his interpretation of essential aspects of Buddhist teachings to a more modern, uh, Western-speaking English, uh, English Western-English-speaking audience. Punadamu structures his book as a series of ten letters from Mara to each of his ten armies who range abroad in the world of death and rebirth, ensuring the beings do not escape. The concept of Mara's 10 armies stems from the earliest Buddhist reference to the god, the Sutta Napatha, in which the Buddha-to-be rebukes Mara by naming and declaring powerless his armies of sense desires, boredom, hunger and thirst, craving, sloth, cowardice, uncertainty, malice and obstinacy, honor and notoriety, and finally self-praise and denigration. Mara himself is described in Letter from Mara as sitting in a heavenly realm at an office desk quote, an elegant figure in a comfortable leather chair. We are told he is quote, tall and handsome, impeccably dressed and groomed, with a suave, timeless and fashionable style. Two goddesses serve as his personal assistants, doing his nails and his hair as he sits at his desk. He dictates his letters to yet another goddess slash secretary. In between, the mouse that he uses to scroll through his computer screen is made of rubies and unicorn ivory, and he looks through the different realms of the empire and he oversees his campaign to limit the influence of the one he refers to as the adversary, the Buddha. In these instructions, then, that he sends out through his computer and through his dictation to his armies, Mara suggests that his servants not be openly confrontational or even evident in the lives of humans, but to subtly and suggestively point them toward certain behaviors and ideas. For instance, he tells the army of sense desires to turn humans focus toward ideals of beauty, heightening fetishes on the physical body suggests that the army of boredom be sure to intervene whenever a task becomes difficult, and instructs his army of craving to always aim their target's desire a little bit higher. For instance, it's not enough just to get the job, but once you have it, ask for a promotion, and then once you have the promotion, ask for another raise, and then once you have the raise, try to be the boss, and so on. For Punadhamma, Mara thus operates at a subliminal level, which is consonant in many ways to prior Buddhist representation of Mara such as in the Sutta Napatha, the Ten Armies of Mara are not impositions or exploitations of an originally pure human nature, but examples or allegories of fundamental baseline inclinations of all beings. In other words, Mara and his armies, in Buddhist view, are not corrupting human nature, just trying to keep it on its course, which is oblivion of suffering and discontent. In other ways, however, Punadamo strives openly to update his subject often veering into social and cultural satire. He has Maro remark, for instance, that, quote, technology itself is largely a product of sensual desire. He illustrates this by giving a simple reason for not creating a web page on the internet. It would only be redundant. He also claims to have been behind the creation of the television, calling it his Project Vidiot. Hunanamo is similarly critical of capitalism and big business, styling Maro as the, quote, CEO of Samsara. Indeed, business metaphors abound as Mara scoffs at any need for his forces to downsize. He scolds his research and development branch for not developing new ideas to trick humans into believing in immortality. He smiles as his secretary congratulates him by saying, that's why you make the big bucks, Mara. Similarly, Punadamo targets the cult of celebrity, having Mara display an image of Elvis Presley at his prime before an adulating crowd. Then fast forward a number of years to where the singer is bloated and pasty-faced, scrambling for his drugs. And one of the images I was going to show you from the website where you actually can download a form of letter from Mara, you see an image of Marilyn Monroe. And beneath it is printed, uh, scroll over me to see the, the real me, baby. And once you do, you see it transforms into a, a leering skull. So, uh, Celebrity, it seems, is, is portraying as, as one of Mara's tools, a mask for uh, latent suffering. Punadamo thus repackages Mara for the West in such a way as to be critical of Western culture, especially its focus on technology, capitalism, and celebrity. Mara and his forces, however, are revealed in the work to be ultimately self-defeating. In a clever turn, Punadamo, during each chapter, also has Mara and his attendants exhibit the very quality which they intend to inflict on the world. For instance, while dictating his letter to the army of sloth, Maura asks his secretary to look up the world, a city, meaning torpor, apathy, to which she applies why bother. While composing his letter to the army of malice and obstinacy, he viciously berates a lowly lieutenant for his inadequate report. Later, he indulges in a recitation of his own powers and offices during discussion of the army of self-praise and so on. The ultimate example of self-defeat, though, comes at the very conclusion of the book, Mara, whose exquisite youth and good looks have been emphasized throughout, reaches for his platinum and tiger bone comb and is horrified to discover a single gray hair. For Lewis, the demonic is self-defeating, in the sense that it leads to infighting, self-destruction, self-loathing, as a demon screw tape and wormwood demonstrate. Punadamo, on the other hand, illustrates the self-defeating nature of the demonic from the Buddhist point of view, which is that it is self-deluding those under Mara's influence will believe, as he does himself, that they are immune to change, impervious to suffering, discant, death. As Mara is evidently intended as an extrapolation, in Punadamo's view, of the tendencies and proclivities of the Western world, the text employs the evil one as an allegory of the self-deluding nature of that way of life. So now let's turn to Mara in the more science fiction context, with his appearance in Doctor Who in 1982 and 1983. The writer of both series, named Christopher Bailey, has commented that at the time of the writing of these scripts, he'd been studying Buddhism fairly heavily. And the episodes he crafted for Doctor Who provided an opportunity to quote, digest imaginatively what he had learned. As background, the uh, character Doctor Who himself is a time-traveling alien, capable of living multiple lives through a process of regeneration. He combats evil and injustice across the temporal and physical universe. And as a consequence of the character's ability to regenerate, uh, the role's been assumed by numerous actors, as played by Peter Davison in the episodes we'll consider. He's called simply the Doctor. His real name is never revealed, not even to the companions who go with him on his journeys. In the first episodes we'll look at, entitled Kinda, The doctor and three of his companions named Tegan, Adric, and Nyssa visit a world called Devaloka. The planet is shown to be entirely forested, with abundant food, consistently temperate climate, and no predatory animals. The native population called the kinda lives in huts made of thatched branches, has few possessions, and is led by two wise women named Puna and Karuna. Mara first enters the episode when Tegan, one of the doctor's companions, falls asleep under a tree. She then dreams of three ghostly white, frightening figures that torment her. Calling themselves Dukkha, Anicca, and Anatta, they agree to relent only if Tegan allows a more powerful force to possess her. At that time, a snake wriggles onto her arm, becoming a tattoo, and in time we'll learn that the the snake symbolizes the influence and, and presence of Mara, the possession of Mara, of that individual. Tegan awakens under Mara's control and begins to spread the beings influence around the society, creating chaos and conflict. At times, Mara leaves one host for another, always symbolized by the transference of the snake tattoo. The doctor then seeks out the wise women, Puna and Karuna, telling them of the recent calamities. They recognize the snake as the mark of Mara, the evil one. And they go on to say, quote, it is the Mara who now turned the wheel, who danced to the music of our despair, Our suffering is the Mara's delight. Our madness is the Mara's meat and drink. Acting together, the doctor and wise women devise a plan to trap the Mara in a wall of mirrors as it, quote, cannot bear the sight of its own reflection. Once a possessed kinda is trapped in this mirror enclosure, Mara leaves his body and takes on the form of an enormous red snake, growing to ever larger and larger proportions until it bursts into nothing. When asked what has happened to Mara, the doctor remarks, it's gone back to where it came from, quote, the dark places of the inside. And the image I was going to show here, along with some of the images of the, of the planet and the doctor himself, was of the, a close-up of this snake itself, which in, um, I'm told, true Doctor Who fashion during this time period, very, very low production values of this rubbery snake, this kind of glows pink. So. So with terms such as uh, Pana, Karuna, Doka, and so forth, the writer's attempt to insert Buddhist ideas is, is quite obvious. However, the episodes are not a mere transplantation of Buddhist thought into a new medium, by any means. There's substantial blending with Western thought and symbolism, particularly Christian. As we recall, the planet Devaloka is entirely forested, is repeatedly referred to by another group of intergalactic explorers as a paradise. It lacks bad weather, disease, predators, hunger, and so forth. The trees are continuously in fruit, And they are shown without exception to be apples. (laughs) If one takes into account the symbolic shorthand and ultimate physical form of Mara, a giant snake, the allegorical meaning of the story is largely hybrid. This is a Garden of Eden world employing Buddhist terms and is terrorized by a satanic figure who happens to be named Mara. A second point to make about this first set of episodes before we go on to the, the next series deals with the thematic meaning behind who's responsible for unleashing and fostering Mara. Previously, I mentioned another group of space-traveling explorers a doctor encounters. Uh, This group hails from a, quote, galactic federation. They've come to the planet to investigate it for possible colonization. They live in a massive dome structure and explore the planet in a self-propelled mechanical suit, relying entirely on technology for all their needs. This, as well as the group's rhetoric about the need to appropriate and consume the planet's resources, sets them in stark contrast to the native, nature loving, wise, spiritual kinda. It is, by all appearances, a recurrent and simplistic dichotomy of technology versus nature, colonizer versus colonized, spiritual versus soulless, rational West versus mystic East, to invoke uh, Jane Iwamuro's concept of virtual orientalism. It is the technology-minded and dependent space explorers who release Mara, such as Doctor Who's companion, and then they serve as the evil one's primary hosts before the knowledge of the simple kinda can be summoned to combat it. To follow the allegory, it seems that it's then inherent in the Western way to be oblivious of and unleash Mara, while the only salvation rests in taking up and consulting Eastern wisdom. Now I turn to the, the second series of, of episodes entitled Snake Dance, and these were also written by Christopher Bailey. Uh, we find at the beginning of these episodes that Mara was not defeated after all. The prior companion Tegan, who was possessed by Mara, continues to have nightmares of a cave of snakes on another planet named Manusa, which continues the appropriation of, of polylanguage terms. The doctor decides they should visit this world to investigate. Meanwhile, the audience is introduced to the Society of Manusa, which is revealed to once have been the home world of the Mara, and they're preparing to celebrate the 500-year anniversary of the Evil One's defeat. The Society's upper-class royalty, primarily a mother named Tanha and her son Lon, are preparing for the ceremony, but they demonstrate that they, nor anyone else, truly take it seriously any longer. Mara, to them, is an ancient superstition. Lon and Tanha would rather languidly lounge on opulent couches in their palace, eating grapes and drinking wine. The mother and son deride the much smaller portion of the population who not only believe in the reality of Mara, but are actively preparing for his imminent possible return. These people who are called snake dancers, according to Tanha, are, quote, frightful, dirty people, covered in ash, some of them almost naked, living entirely on roots and berries and things, putting themselves in trances all the time the leader of these snake dancers, who initially led them from society into the desert to prepare for Mara's return, is called Dojin. Immediately, there are some aspects here that require comment. First, uh, Tanha and Dojin, which seems likely a play on Dogen, the Zen meditation master, continue the tradition of the use of Buddhist names and terms. Yet in other ways, the arrangement of representations is an interesting pastiche of traditions. The description of the snake dancers seems more fitting for Hindu agoris rather than Buddhist monks, or perhaps this is just a particular Western stereotype for all mystical Easterners as frightful, dirty people. The notion of those preparing to resist Mara associating with snakes also seems a bit jarring. but This is explained by an interview with the writer who attributed this detail to his own fascination with uh, Pentecostal snake handling services in the US Appalachians. So the tapestry of representations reaches far and wide at this point, making numerous and surprising connections. And on that point, we should actually in some ways could anticipate this, as Catherine Albanese in her studies of popular culture and religion has said the following. Popular culture always pieces and patches together its universe of meanings, appropriating terms, inflections, and structures from numerous overlapping contexts, using them as so many ad hoc tools to order and express, to connect inner with outer, and to return to inner again. Bailey's work seems a perfect example of this tendency. Meanwhile, in the rest of these episodes, the Doctor uncovers evidence of an enormous crystal called the Great Mind's Eye, and this will allow Mara to assume control over Minusa again. Evidently, centuries earlier, Mara formed through that crystal as a distillation of the restlessness, greed, and hatred of the Minusans. Mara has by now possessed Tegan and Lon, who will have the crystal in his keeping during the ceremony in an underground cavern. The Doctor travels to find Dogen, who emerges from the desert as an elderly man completely pacific, entirely silent, he communicates only through telepathy, barefoot, carrying a staff. He sits cross-legged with the doctor and instructs him in single-pointed concentration, along with you know, such platitudes as, find the still point in your heart. And hold on to the place the winds of fear cannot blow. The meditatively trained doctor arrives at the cave, just as Lon has unleashed Mara, once again in the form of a giant snake. The assembled crowd gasps and screams in horror, but the doctor concentrates on a smaller crystal given to him, projecting his calm, unafraid mind onto Mara, who eventually falls over dead, spewing copious amounts of pink slime. That was, that was gonna be the last image that I showed you, so you you, you, get, you can just try to see what that would look like in your head. I don't know why it's pink slime, I'm just what it is. So at this point, let's put the two instances into conversation to look at the similarities and differences in their adaptations of Mara to entirely new cultural circumstances. On that subject, I can really only limit myself to a, a few points. The first is the obvious manner in which each is reacting to Christian symbolism, both explicitly and implicitly. Plunidamo, for example, brings Buddhist messages forward by deliberately borrowing the method of a Christian apologist. And he grafts his message onto Mara, uh, about Mara onto a more dualistically Christian worldview. In Letter from Mara, one does get the impression of Mara stalking the world, or at least sending his minions to do so, as perhaps, stereotypically, Christians have over the ages imagined Satan doing. To an extent, this is reminiscent of Stephen Prothero's observation about the famous convert Henry Steele Olcott's attempt, in his own mind, to adapt Buddhism to the modern world. Punadamo has partly fed a Buddhist lexicon through a Christian grammar, presumably as a means to connect to and communicate with an audience more familiar with that particular religious language. On the other hand, while Punadamo acknowledges the appropriated nature of his approach, the Doctor Who episodes are much more implicitly related to Christian influences. As we've seen, the portrayal of Mara in those episodes owes a great deal to the representation of Satan in key Christian understandings. The writings of Christopher Bailey's fellow British convert Buddhist, Stephen Batchelor, especially in his work Living with the Devil, have relevance here. In that book, Batchelor discusses his personal interpretation of the Buddhist figure Mara, yet uses the Christian terms devil and Satan throughout as equivalent to Mara. He explains the reasoning for doing so this way. Quote, as a Westerner who has practiced Buddhism for the past 30 years, I'm aware of the parallel mythologies within that compete for my attention. I was not raised a Christian, but recognize how I have imbibed the myths and values of Christianity from the post-Christian liberal humanist environment around me. To use Bachelor's phrase, it seems that the walls between the parallel mythologies are quite permeable in kinda and snake dance. Despite the use of Buddhist terminology throughout, the dominant means for conceiving and portraying Mara are really quite Christian. At the same time, both narratives adapt aspects of the dominant culture, they also seek to subvert it. In letter from Mara, the evil one is a boorish, hedonistic capitalist peddling television, the internet, and other drugs. Punadamo locates Mara and the activities which increase his power at the heart of Western economics and leisure activities. In the Doctor Who series, Bailey is not quite so blunt, but the imperialist galactic colonists and indolent self-absorbed Menusans, both of whom spread Mara's influence, seem to be caricatures of a Western culture blind to the forces of death and desire in their midst. Yet there is a certain irony involved in these efforts as both media attempt to make Mara and Buddhism also more relatable to a Western audience, and consequently make Buddhism more appealing. In the Doctor Who episode, this is done by presenting Buddhism and Mara as simultaneously rational, scientific, psychologically reasonable, as well as mystical and magical. In order to give a faux scientific explanation behind the usage of crystals in snake dance, the Doctor explains that the effect generated by each rests on thought resonances, which when powerful enough, can form matter and operate not unlike sound wavelengths. In addition, the description of Mara as emanating from the dark impulses of the Minusins in the distant past, returning now to haunt them, demonstrates shades of the invisible monster from the science fiction classic Forbidden Planet, which termed its beasts monsters from the it, borrowing heavily from Freudian and Jungian psychology. In both series of episodes, besides being a giant snake, Mara is associated primarily with psychological processes. Those stated in generic forms, such as dark places of the inside, the depths of the human heart, for instance. This allows for the writer to describe Buddhism as scientific enough to speak to the West, but also mystical enough to be the salvation of the West. In letter from Mara, Punadamo strives from the beginning to update the Mara mythology and connect it to American technological and popular culture. So the aforementioned references to television, the internet, and Elvis Presley operate in this vein And here, James, Liska's transvaluation really uh, helps us by describing instances in which language, uh, quote, reevaluates the perceived, imagined, or conceived markedness and rank relations of a referent in an opposing system. It shows how you take different parts of the narrative and and flip them and reorder them to uh, form new hierarchies. Finally, the connection between these reinterpretations of Mara and prior Buddhist narratives is instructive. For Punadhamma, as mentioned previously, Though borrowing C.S. Lewis's conceit, he spliced it with the concept of Mara's 10 armies found in the Sutta Napata. Though in that Pali text Mara's armies are simply enumerated and not described in any great detail, Punadavo does structure the letter from Mara on that framework and goes on to personify each army and its qualities. He also manages, whether intentionally or not, to strike a chord with the ending of that Pali Sutta. If we recall at the end of letter from Mara, the evil one discovers a gray hair Demonstrating his own susceptibility to the corruption of samsara, That he also will age and eventually die. And so he's self-deluded in his struggle against the adversary, That Buddha, is ultimately futile. In the Sutta Nampata, upon Mara's failure to dissuade Gautama from his pursuit of awakening, Mara is said to sit dejectedly, scratching in the dirt. seemingly so he's, he's lost his own ver for, for, for living. So here across time and space, the two narratives conclude with a similar vision of a of a pitiable figure committed to a useless struggle. For the Doctor Who episodes, parallels with earlier poly or Sanskrit narratives are more difficult to discern. Primarily, it's the influence of the medium of, of television that's altered the portrayal of the evil one. For example, especially in the Snake Dance series, as Mara possesses one individual after another, he does so first by demanding, in an appropriately distorted growling voice, that the victim, look at me. The music crescendos, and the poor individual, forced to look at the snake image, succumbs. And clearly this is done for dramatic effect, to make the villain more imposing, built to higher elements, and so its eventual fall will be all the more satisfying. So it's of note, though, to those who've studied earlier narrative forms of Mara, because in those Buddhist textual sources, at least, when Mara assails an individual, normally he attempts to avoid attention. In fact, in one of the earliest and most sustained texts on Mara, the Mara Sangyuta, the Sangyuta Nikaya, the standard formula for Mara's defeat is the recognition of his presence by the Buddha. Then he's dismissed, and Mara always grumbles in the same words, the blessed one knows me, and then he vanishes. So this portrayal has has been exchanged for dramatic license. Now to to summarize what we've seen. Uh, By looking at adaptations of Mara So Western popular culture narratives, we can appreciate how the figure's been tailored to at least a a, a little bit of the new media and to some new audiences, and how he communicates at the same time some new concerns, even while retaining a little bit of the facet, in some senses, of older textual representations. For a letter from Mara, John Cunadamo has attempted to update Mara for a new context, in new clothes, perhaps more relevant to his time and place. In the episodes of Doctor Who, It seems as if an even more complicated dynamic is occurring, which we might appreciate by looking metaphorically at the means of his defeat in both series, the wall of mirrors in kinda, and the crystals in snake dance. Both crystals and mirrors are objects known for redirection, refraction, reflection of light. It seems an appropriate metaphor for what's occurring in these episodes regarding the Buddhist tropes employed. While the writer's stated objective was to think through Buddhist ideas imaginatively, they have like light through a crystal come across slightly bent by certain cultural presuppositions, and they ultimately reflect long-standing Western notions about Buddhism, and about the so-called mystic East in general. In either case, through these two examples of reimagined, perhaps reinvigorated Mara, we are witnesses to the ever-shifting, ever-changing nature of Buddhist narrative. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Nichols, uh, for a very engaging uh, lecture on uh, MARA reimagined. I'm a little disappointed we couldn't see the images. I was looking forward to the pink slime. (laughs) Well, next time, there's something to look forward to. Uh, At this time, we'd like to call upon Dr. Scott Mitchell to uh, be the respondent.
0: Um, Well, first of all, thank you very much, and I apologize again that the AV stopped working, but um, the pink slime would have been fun to see. Um, Thank you very much for a very engaging and interesting paper. I want to begin by taking note of the, the, one of the points you ended on of uh, the difference between a sort of hidden Mara in uh, canonical sources versus the, the, the visual look at me Mara in the Doctor Who series and point out that this is the, the result of uh, the medium, as you point out, that the visual medium of television necessarily requires a different kind of uh, discourse or a different kind of narrative. Um, And I want to say this is an obvious point to be sure, and I don't want to name drop Marshall McLuhan to say that the medium is the message, but go further there and point out that the medium necessarily creates or helps construct or dictates the kinds of narratives that we create. Um, I think it bears reflection to notice the ways in which different kinds of medium uh, engender different kinds of narrative structures, whether it's the visual medium of television or um, the... Lovely painting in front of a Nigene. Different kinds of mediums create different sorts of stories and different kinds of medium, uh, different kinds of narratives. Um, I'm reminded of 45 RPM records that um, can only hold so much space, which means that the song that you can put onto that kind of a record is necessarily a short pop song. Um, or in more contemporary, since I don't, don't wanna lose some of the younger people. Um, so a more contemporary uh, uh, analogy might be uh, the DVR, which allows you to record television and the very act of recording television and skipping over commercials has drastically changed the way that uh, television uh, is being produced, thus changing the kinds of narratives we see in television. Um, but this also then points to uh, not only the modes of production and how that changes narratives, but also the uh, the, processes, the processes of distribution, which then ties in, of course, to other larger uh, issues of uh, corporatists, uh, corporate distribution, business models, capitalism, and so on and so forth. Um, and I think we can relate this in some ways to some of the comments that uh, Dr. Payne made about uh, uh text being not necessarily... Um, the kind of thing you would just give to anyone as a story to read, but rather a manual. So this is a different kind of medium that creates a different kind of narrative. If it's a manual, it's not gonna read like a novel in the same way. Um, But it also points to uh, how that text might be distributed or who it might have been created for. So this is another way that we can um, look at narratives in terms of the audience and who these uh, stories are, are intended to reach. So in both of your examples, um, the the letter from Mara or Doctor Who, um, you know, who who is the audience? Uh, who is the intended audience? Who are these stories intended to actually reach out to, and how do those audiences differ from other narrative sources? Um, so those are all just sort of some general starting points. Um, the, the 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 letter from Mara, for, the letter from Mara is a very interesting narrative, and I find it um, fascinating as a way of uh, almost translating a narrative from one cultural context to another. Um, the the process of taking the, 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 the traditional Mara narrative and then updating it into a Western context is rather interesting, but at the same time, it's also clearly a sort of amalgamation or hybridization between um, the, uh, the letter from Mara and the screw tape letters is a very obvious connection. Um, even the moral point of both of those stories seems to be the same, even if it's shifted a little bit. Right, It's shifted a little bit from um, the process of uh, self-destruction, for example, or self-delusion between Satan and Mara. <clears throat> um, the last thing I'd like to point out, of course, is what we're also talking about is, uh, and you uh, point out this quite nicely, in terms of the way in which we are uh, looking at, uh, the, the way that these novel, uh, these narratives allow us to do uh, a sort of self-critique of Western culture. This is this is very clear in Punadamo's work where he's, uh, critiquing um, uh, technology, critiquing business, critiquing uh, the indulgences that he sees in Western culture, and looking to Buddhism as an antidote to these or a uh, solution to these problems. And we see hints of this as well in Doctor Who, and mora's work is very important here in helping us uh, look at the ways in which we might be uh, critiquing Western culture and looking to an idealized version of the mystic East or the Orient in order to... Uh, solve, our, uh, solve our problem, so to speak, with Western uh, modernity. Um, and this is, I think, particularly clear in the um, stories from Doctor Who. Um, when we look at who it is who unleashes Mara, it's either the um, uh, who unleashes Mara on either the idyllic uh, kinda or the self possessed Manusans. It seems to be the, the, again, the forces of technology, the forces of Western uh, uh, self delusion, and so on. Um, and this draws our attention to the dichotomy between technology and nature, colonizer and colonized. Um, and I would point out that uh, while at the same time uh, the salvation in these uh, episodes comes from uh, sort of drawing on Eastern, uh, the sort of mystical, spiritual, esoteric practices, um, ultimately it's the doctor who does this uh, saving. Ultimately it's the doctor who, uh, who, who rescues the kinda or rescues the Manusans from Mara. So, to take that allegory a bit further, it'd be uh, worthwhile to sort of pay attention to who it is who's actually doing the saving. And clearly, it's the doctor himself. And, you know, let's be honest, he's British. Um, so, this sort of perpetuates ideas of colonizer and colonized. Um, and uh, we can't help but notice how this uh, coincides with the larger orientalist narratives concerning a forgotten or or lost practices of the mystic east, Um, and it is the doctor who who, uh, goes into the cave and gets the magic crystal and and ultimately creates a lot of pink goo. Um, So these narratives uh, have a slightly different spin, however, I would say, on the, uh, uh, the, the colonizer colonized narrative. Um, in part because following the Doctor's uh, uh, saving of these planets, he's he's off to his next adventure. He doesn't stick around. Um, there's no evidence that he himself uh, converts, so to speak, to the mystic, uh, the, the, the Asian other. Um, he saves the planets and then um, is off to another uh, adventure. So in that way, he's uh, almost like a Christ-like figure, but I guess that would be a different um, symposium. Um, so so uh, in sum, I think it's helpful to call our attention to the way that Buddhist icons, imagery, or concepts are incorporated into popular culture and how these narratives reveal, um, uh, and what these narratives reveal mostly, as you said, uh, you know, popular culture is a reflection of ourselves. It's not so much that we look to popular culture or mass media as a way of saying, what can we learn about Buddhism from this representation, but really it's more a question of what can we learn about ourselves in, uh, in, in looking at, in a sort of mirror reflection. But I also really appreciated your comments about how mirrors and crystals refract and reflect um, light as well as uh, uh, reflect and, and misdirect light as well as reflect it. Um, and I would suggest that to sort of push that metaphor, um, when we look at the, the mirror of pop culture and we see ourselves, we're probably not seeing a direct reflection, but a misdirected reflection of various parts of ourselves. Um, so thank you very much for an engaging paper.